Hi, I'm Mary C. Curtis, and this is Equal Time. Images of Haitian asylum seekers being confronted at the U.S.-Mexico border by agents on horseback, wielding reins, corralling men, women, and children, were shocking to many Americans. For some, it seemed a throwback to a time when overseers and law enforcement used that same tactic to control Black people. Some enslaved, some not. Many noticed the harsh treatment meted out toward desperate Black migrants and wondered if skin color made a difference. Is U.S. immigration policy anti-Black? Has the United States' fraught history with Haiti, one that includes occupation and debt collection, tainted how the cases of Haitians trying to enter the country are handled? Patrice Lawrence is executive director for the UndocuBlack Network, a community of currently and formerly undocumented Black people fighting, as its mission statement says, to not only survive, but thrive. She has served as UndocuBlack's National Policy and Advocacy Director, leading the network's efforts on immigration rights and racial justice. And she was a member of the inaugural core leadership team. Welcome to Equal Time, Patrice. Thanks for having me, Mary. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Yeah, I want to talk with you, you know, about United States immigration policy. And just ask you straight out, is U.S. immigration policy racist? Absolutely. United States immigration policy is racist by design. That's what it is. And that's how it was built. And unfortunately, for us who um, are on the brunt of that, that's how it has continued to thrive. Explain to me, what does that look like? So immigration policy being racist looks like creating policies only for certain people and not for others. It looks like what the quiet part that was said out loud during Donald Trump, we may remember when he mentioned, why can't we have nice people from Norway? Now that may have sounded crass, but it truly embodies what the immigration system looks like. If you are white, European, uh, richer especially, you have more ways to migrate to the United States, either permanently or temporarily. You get more visas for your country, so you're able to access that. You are um, more likely to be accepted and approved by both the consulates as well as United States Citizenship Immigration Services for a green card or for any type of visa status. And you get policies that are made just for you so that your family is allowed to migrate to the United States. If you are anything that is not white or rich, um, you face pretty much the opposite of that. Well, you you mentioned the last few years about the quiet part out loud, (laughs) but policies uh, have been touted by advocates as particularly anti-immigrant over the past few years and mentioning particularly Title 42, which the last administration enacted and it has continued in this one, that the U.S. has used it to expel migrants who've been in a country recently where a communicable disease was present. So with the pandemic, that gives a really wide berth to turn people away. Are Black immigrants targeted more so than brown immigrants, other immigrants with this policy? 
Our findings have said so, that Black immigrants are targeted more by Title 42. First of all, Title 42 is only being used at the United States-Mexico border. It is only being used for migrants who are traveling on foot to the United States. It is not being used to stop individuals from coming by vehicle. It is not being used at the Canada, ca Canadian border. And it's not being used for airport air, airplane flights. It is only being used for a specific type of person. What is more is that these individuals who are presenting themselves for asylum, which is their legal right, are turned away. Mm. Now, I think it really came into the uh, really the consciousness of a lot of other folks when they saw these horrific images at the border of those agents. Uh, pursuing Haitian asylum seekers on horseback, uh, holding reins and people scurrying around. And that really brought attention to the plight of Haitians in particular. Uh, is it just Haitians or is it other Black migrants as well? It isn't just Haitians, it's other Black migrants as well. What we saw with those horrifying images was that uh, a, a new set of individuals had come who were mostly Haitian um, folks, but it is not just Haitians. And we've seen this approach with Black people, no matter where you're from, either from the continent of Africa or the Caribbean. Yeah, you talk about that Blacks are turned away. One of the most surprising and disappointing numbers that I saw recently was from uh, a number of 2017 to early 2021 about who was allowed in for asylum. And those numbers said only about 4,000 or so Haitians were allowed to successfully seek asylum during that time. That represented less than 10% of um, the in entire folks who were let in and a denial rate of even more than that. The numbers sometimes are few. And unfortunately, ICE and CBP, so Immigration Customs and Enforcement, CBP, Customs and Border um, uh, Protection, doesn't have to uh, report everything. And they don't have to report everything by race or by country. And they don't even have to report why it is that they turn someone away. So sometimes numbers are hard to get by. But those numbers that we saw recently for asylum were really alarming. We know that Haiti has had uh, recent turmoil and weather disasters and so much else. And the Biden administration did extend that temporary protected status for Haitians. Is that a solution of sorts or is a pathway to citizenship or something else needed? It's a, the, the temporary protected status is a solution for anyone who was in the United States on the day that it was granted. Um, so the new date that was this past summer. Uh, so it helps those Haitians. And we fought long and hard to be able to allow the reenactment of that. And a lot of that is just resetting what Trump uh, destroyed uh, because he had killed temporary protected status for Haitians in 2017. And it's been a constant fight since then. We've been holding on by a thread. What are some of the special challenges that Black immigrants uh, may face coming to the United States? Yeah, absolutely. So, of course, there is the language barrier. Uh, some folks uh, are from Francophone countries. Many countries in Africa are Francophone. Um, uh, they, and so 
that uh, is an issue. They've got other folks who just speak other languages altogether. And we have not always done a good job in the United States, believe it or not, being accessible, right? We're not accessible. Um, and so that is challenging. Um, then when it comes to inherent bias in the system itself, I've mentioned it that immigrants in general tend to not be believed and Black immigrants in particular tend to not be believed. So even when they submit an application for a green card, and we've seen this with the green card bill that we passed in 2019 on Docu Black and Advocates, um, where it's really hard to have Congress pass out a bill that allowed for 10,000 green cards for Liberians who'd been in the United States, most of them for almost 30 years. And we're seeing a denial rate of over 15% from USCIS. And the reasons that they're giving are truly shocking, you know, and it really boils down to just inherently believing that Black people are not worthy of being believed, of being given the benefit of the doubt, or of accessing any type of reprieve. That permeates a system through and through and through. We're a threat, and so they've got to stop us. Yeah, so when you talk about the different stories, it's when they have their story of persecution or uh, you know, political retaliation, that those stories just aren't really believed. That's right. That's right. That's even what's happening with Haitians. You know, we've heard Secretary Mayorkas himself say it. Haitians are economic migrants. How can you say that when their president was just assassinated? I think they've got a few more reasons to be traveling by foot than economic woes. That may actually be the least of their worries. It's interesting. I know Undocu Black really really focuses on the experience of Black immigrants. And so often when you talk about challenges, people talk about the challenges of minorities and people of color. Um, and I don't want to minimize the Black experience, but if you could talk a little bit about the difference between Black and Brown asylum seekers and migrants and, and how it can really, you don't want to pit one group against the other, but how it can really be especially uh, difficult for uh, Black asylum seekers. So want to be really clear um, that, of course, it, both Black folks and anyone with a proximity to Blackness, that's the way anti-Blackness works, is that they will be persecuted and they will have a difficult time. Now, to talk about how immigration policy is anti-Black, I'll mention one more, um, something that's colloquially called MPP or the Remain in Mexico policy that Trump instituted. And it basically uh, sent folks back to Mexico to wait, didn't allow them to cross the border. This was even before the pandemic. And when the Biden administration came in, they said, OK, we're going to get rid of that policy and we're going to allow people the right to seek asylum and the right to travel back to the United States from Mexico. If you look at those numbers there, most of the individuals who are involved in that program are not black. They are brown folks. They're folks who are from Central America, from Mexico, from other places. And you say, why? Well, the point was that the only way that you could be a part of the remain in Mexico was that you had to have been allowed to cross in the first place. And black folks were not allowed to cross the border in the first place. And so as much as getting rid of that policy is a good thing, we celebrate it, we want that, 
that's not going to help us because our people were never allowed to cross in the first place. So you've got to do something else. And so that's just one example of how policy is anti-Black. And if you don't look at the details, you will miss us. You will absolutely miss Black migrants if you do not create policy that is specific to us. You talk about the difficulty of keeping numbers, uh, Patrice, and how it's, it's they're kind of fuzzy when you get them from the government. Do you uh, keep your own numbers? Uh, how do you get the numbers of Black immigrants like applying for asylum, who've been turned away, uh, how many get in annually. Uh, Do you keep those numbers? We keep some of them, um, some of the numbers, and we work with other individuals and other organizations like Human Rights Watch and Haitian Bridge Alliance and um, uh, Witness at the Border who keep closer numbers. Uh, Some of it, though, especially when we talk about even who's Black and undocumented in the United States, you have to crunch those with other numbers because the other thing is that many people are not given the chance to identify as both Black and Latinx, for instance, or uh, both Black and let's say they came by way of Sweden, but we're actually Ethiopian. We have to think about on a global context, folks can be Black but their entry point into the United States was a non-Black majority country. They still count if they lost their immigration status at some point in the United States. So it really takes a lot of time to comb through the details to be able to have those numbers. And our team has done that, but it's a really painstaking time incentive process, which is sometimes hard to do when there's not that many of us and we have so many rapid response needs. Now, you've talked a little bit in reference to uh, the Trump administration. I want to skip ahead to the Biden administration. Have they done anything different than the Trump administration so far? The Biden administration, at least on the border, have been a failure overall. Um, but they have made some changes, so ending the MPP program and reinstituting a few things. On the legislative front, There is promise. There's absolutely promise there. Biden introduced the United States Citizenship Act uh, within his first 100 days into the House and also into the Senate. Uh, He passed it over there, but they're yet to be passed. Most things, as you know, are now being passed through reconciliation, the the, the 50-vote threshold. Biden has a real chance there, a real chance there to allow for green cards to go through. And I'm not talking about this character that they've mentioned, the parliamentarian who determines what rules it follows. I'm talking about the chance that they have to allow uh, green cards to go through the Senate by making sure that whoever is the presiding officer, my preference being the vice president, knocks down any Republican point of order that comes up to try and strip citizenship out. What are some of the other policies that you see as solutions and ones that may even have been suggested from your organization and organization like yours, uh, activism, grassroots activism? Absolutely. 
I see making sure that we get rid of the public charge rule, which is something that says that if you become a green card holder within the first five years, you don't get access to any safety net programs, including um, things you may need for your children to be healthy, food, housing, anything like that. I see being able to up the asylum numbers. We have the ability to do that. We need to also overhaul USCIS. We need new staff, more staff and infrastructure. And at the same time, moving the money from ICE and CBP. ICE and CBP have $25 billion per year allotted to just them, just that part of Department of Homeland Security. And we have seen this past summer with the pictures at the border that apparently they're using that money for horses and whips. I don't know about you, <laughs> but I would much prefer that they use that money to processing the backlog of visa applications and green card applications that they have. I want to talk a little bit about your own experience with the U.S. immigration system. I believe you were born in Jamaica? I was born in Jamaica. I was born in Jamaica. I migrated here um, quite some time ago and went to school here in the United States. I was a student myself. I got my uh, my degree here. And... Um, I, I began working here uh, with with authorization, with a visa as well, and intended to be able to to stay longer and and to to, to access a pathway. And found out that there weren't many. Uh, got into law school and realized I also didn't have a pathway and have been stuck since because of something called the three and ten year bars. It basically says that if I were to ever leave. I can't come back for at least 10 years or more. And for most folks, that actually means never. And so that calculation was a little hard for me and my family. So you're in limbo now? I'm in limbo right now. This uh, thing that we're fighting for on DocuBlock, providing green cards, applies to me. I'm working on the very legislation that can change my life. Now, what do you believe, what issues do you believe have been missing from the conversation about Black immigrants? You know, one thing I would say is perhaps missing from Black immigrants and in general individuals is the toll that it takes on individuals when you are not allowed autonomy. Um, especially as a woman, I can say that, you know, falling out of a limbo status has put a target on my back in other ways long before I became uh, uh, more involved in immigration movement. You don't have access to certain resources. And when you don't have access to certain resources, you do what you have to to get it. Um, to be clear, individuals who entered the United States through a visa are able to adjust through marriage and sometimes also through other close familial relationships. But that opens up the door for abuse because that means someone else holds the power over your life. And that has meant incredible difficulty for women, for queer folks, when we talk about who are your family members and whether or not they're going to file this paperwork for you. I think that women for too long have been dependent on patriarchy, have been dependent on men to be able to have their freedom of movement. And that is perhaps one of the biggest laws that I want to change in the United States. I believe that all people should be able to autonomously seek their own freedom, should be able to autonomously determine where they become a citizen of, and should be given a path to do so. 
Congress has the unique opportunity to do that this year in the reconciliation package. The language is right there for them and they need to use it so that women and queer folks are no longer targeted, that we are able to take back justice in our own hands. I really appreciate you spending this time uh, with the listeners of Equal Time, Patrice. Uh, We, of course, know about just everyday racism that African-Americans or any Black person in this country can face. But you have really uh, talked a lot about an issue, I think, that didn't come into view with many people until those images from the border. Uh, And you do it, as you say, at a little bit of risk to yourself. So thank you, Patrice Lawrence, for joining Equal Time. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here at Equal Time. Thanks for making this space. So, what's keeping me up at night? It's been a little more than six years since nine parishioners at historically Black Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, were gunned down by a racist murderer. A reminder of that tragedy came recently, when the Justice Department agreed to pay the victims $88 million to compensate for a background check failure. No amount will bring them back. The families, of course, need no reminders. But maybe the rest of us do. It was hate that fueled that gunman's rage, and hate and demonization of the other that animates so much of what passes for political dialogue today. Remember June 17, 2015? Heck, most members of GOP leadership don't even want to remember what happened on January 6th of this year, when ordinary citizens, members of white supremacist groups, and some in the military and law enforcement tried to overturn the results of an election and democracy itself. And if laws removing the teaching of racial truths in schools continue to gain traction, the next generations will be ignorant of what happened a hundred years ago or one year ago. They will fail to learn lessons about how and why hate lingers, festers, and grows, and how to keep that history in the past. I write about it in my roll call column this week. Check it out. Now, equal time listener Belinda is sleeping pretty well these days. Ever since a cardiac psychologist helped her reduce the stress in her life. She's not worrying so much and learning to trust that things will work out. Hmm, Belinda, maybe I should remember that bit of wisdom. Let me know what's on your mind by tweeting me at mcurtisnc3. And thank you for listening to Equal Time. Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.